This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Humanity can only survive another thousand years on Earth. That warning came recently from physicist Stephen Hawking, who says to prevent extinction, our species must colonize space. But where would we go? Today, we'll meet two Colorado authors who've given a lot of thought to that question. And a little later, I'm going to talk with a scientist who has already spent a year on Mars, in his own mind. On stage with me now, in front of an audience at the Newman Center in Denver, is Amanda Hendricks. She's senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute in Niwot and co-author of Beyond Earth, Our Path to a New Home in the Planets. And Leonard David is a space journalist from Golden. His book, Mars, Our Future on the Red Planet, came out in conjunction with the new Mars miniseries on National Geographic Channel. And let's welcome them. Amanda, you introduce your book with a vision for colonies on Titan. This is the largest of Saturn's moons. I didn't know Saturn has 62 moons. And you imagine that people could go boating on Titan, even fly with wings on their backs? Titan is a moon, but it acts in a lot of ways more like a planet. It has a very thick atmosphere, and it actually has stable liquid on the surface as lakes and seas. It's the only moon in the solar system that has a thick atmosphere, and it's the only body in the entire solar system besides the Earth that has stable liquid on the surface. So it's a very special place. And with that thick air, it would be pretty easy to fly. Easier to fly there than here? Yes, because it's a small moon. It's a little bit bigger than our own moon. And so the gravity is something like lunar gravity. And the low gravity plus the thick atmosphere means it's very easy to just fly through the atmosphere under your own power, although you'd want to strap on some wings onto your arms. So that would be really fun. I've had dreams like that. (laughs) Also, these lakes and seas that are on the surface mean that you can go boating on the surface. What are they made of? Not water, because it's too cold out there. Um, They are made of liquid methane and ethane. That doesn't sound like a friendly place to float, is it? No, it's fine. It's fine. It's it's perfectly fine. Any kind of boat you can imagine. You could even take a submarine. Why do you think Titan is the best option for a human colony? The reason Titan is best is because of that thick atmosphere. Because when we're talking about a human colony, that means permanent. So we need it to be safe. And most other places in the solar system are not safe because of the radiation problem. So human beings are very susceptible to radiation damage, and Titan's thick atmosphere will protect us from the radiation, and we can live there safely and walk around on the surface and go boating on the lakes and not have to live underground. Why aren't you there now? (laughs) I would go. I think it would be awesome, but it takes a long time to get there. And so right now, we have to overcome the propulsion problem, because right now it takes humans too long to get there. And so the duration of the space flight, which would be something like seven years, would be detrimental to human health because the radiation dose that humans would acquire during that long journey would be very dangerous. How would I breathe on Titan? Right. You'd have to carry your oxygen. The thick atmosphere is mostly nitrogen with uh, methane also. And so there's no uh, oxygen there, but there is plenty of water. The water is frozen, 
but there's a lot of it, so you would have to take the water and do electrolysis to break it up into hydrogen and oxygen so that you have oxygen to breathe. Could I walk around nude on Titan without, <laughs> without anything else? I wouldn't recommend it. Okay. <laughs> okay, because it's very cold there. It's about minus 290 degrees Fahrenheit. I but couldn't you could... walk around for long is the point. <laughs> but um, the nice thing about Titan is because of that thick atmosphere, you would not have to wear a bulky pressure suit like we're all familiar seeing the Apollo astronauts doing yeah. on the moon. Uh, the atmospheric pressure means all we'd have to wear is a suit to keep warm. And then if we're walking around outside, we'd want to wear a respirator and you know, bring some oxygen along. It occurs to me as you describe the atmosphere that it itself could be a source of fuel. That is, on Earth, we think about fuel being beneath us, if we're thinking about fossil fuels. But couldn't you mine that atmosphere for energy? Well, there's plenty of hydrocarbons all over on Titan. In the atmosphere, on the surface, and then in the ethane and methane-rich lakes and seas. Uh, It could be used uh, for energy generation purposes. There's also plenty of other ways to make energy uh, on Titan. A hydro power plant, maybe a wind plant, maybe even even a little bit of solar energy. That'd be pretty minimal, but every little bit counts. If I lived on Titan, if I were part of this colony, and I went to bed, and I looked out my window, what would I see? So the thick atmosphere on Titan gives the whole place kind of an orangey glow. The atmosphere is rich in uh, hydrocarbons, and they are little particulates, kind of like haze here on Earth. And uh, it's far from the sun, so it is kind of dark out there. Not completely dark, though. It's probably similar to a few minutes after sunset here on Earth. Okay. uh, Midday at Titan. Um, So you would want to produce electricity and light up your buildings there inside, but outside it might be kind of darker. But... Uh, at least on one side of Titan, you would be able to look up and see Saturn there, and it would be beautiful. And you'd see the sun, at least during the daytime. So settling on Titan still takes a fair amount of imagination. Leonard, how does that compare with the effort to put people on Mars? It makes Mars look easy. (laughs) Oh, this is going to get fierce tonight. (laughs) It makes Mars look easy. (laughs) We're going to Mars. Humans will be going to Mars. Yeah. What, what are the attributes of Mars that make you so certain? It's close. It's not that far away. One of the things that I am convinced, and I just turned 70. How many people out here are 70 years old? You know, I grew up in the space race. I, I watched Alan Shepard go into space for 15 minutes, and, oh, my, you know, America's in space. And we, then we put 12 men on the moon. We have a a heritage of hardware capability, human sacrifice, human capability to make Mars a metaphor for exploration. And I think the momentum of exploration is going to take us to Mars and Titan and beyond. Let's get even further into the attributes of Mars. So it's closer than Titan. What about dwelling there makes it the next best place besides the, the, the planet we're sitting on now? I think when you look at the, the, the matrix of what's on Mars, you have iron, that's why it's red. You have a lot of other materials that are available. Then you have pockets of underground ice that are laden underneath the surface, converting that into oxygen and water, sustainable things, and also fuel 
for propellant, um, you have a beginning of what you can see as some kind of sustainable operation. Because what I'm trying to get to is not Apollo. It is really not, let's go outside and we'll plant the flag and we'll salute the thing and we'll go get rocks and we'll bring them in the container and we'll, go, we'll take off. That's only hours. Okay, we're talking about sustainable crews that live there for a long period of time. So wait, do you think the first crews that arrive in Mars spend a prolonged amount of time there? They're going to probably be there for maybe a year. It's six months, nine months to get there, six months, nine months to get back. You've got to hang around on the planet to make sure the planets are realigned so you can get back home. So you may be talking about a three-year mission at the most. Um, that's the beginning. And that, that's where it's going to take the political will and the sustainability question coming in. I want to say that President Obama committed NASA to send people to Mars by the 2030s. That's only 15 to 20 years away. And uh, you do acknowledge that this is uh, largely about what administration is in power and what decisions they make. I understand that landing on Mars is no easy task. In October, the European Space Agency's Schiaparelli crashed, trying to land on the red planet. And it's not the first to crash. Why is landing on Mars so tricky? The atmosphere is thin, and it's just so much of an annoyance that it it really you have to take it into account. You write that if they used a parachute to land, it would need to be the size of the Rose Bowl. If you if here's the here's the key, the key thing, you know, yeah, you're right. European Space Agency just crashed a, a robotic lander on Mars just a few a few months ago. However, that mission, people don't remember, also put into orbit around Mars the Trace Gas Orbiter. This is the European Space Agency. And what is it looking for? It's looking for methane. Methane is the signature of biosignatures on, on Mars. Biosignatures. You mean biosignatures. Li- life. 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 Yeah. And, or it could be just some leftover volcanoes they are kind of spewing out some stuff. We don't know. Amanda, are we too worried about safety in some regards? You point out that when explorers crossed the Atlantic to find the New World, the mortality rate was extremely high. Same with settlers. Nearly half the people on the Mayflower died in the first winter. Do we have to be willing to lose people to make this happen? Be it on Titan or Mars. I think we do need to be willing to lose people. I think that um, we are sort of inherently risk-averse, and NASA is risk-averse. People don't like to lose people. Um, It's not fun, right? But we're getting into very risky territory, and we even lost people on the Apollo missions. Now, you said you were willing to go. Would you be willing to sacrifice your life for it? I would be willing to go, yeah. And, And maybe I wouldn't make it all the way there, or maybe I wouldn't make it a year there. Um, but I think it's important, and I think a lot of people out there think it's important to start moving forward and start moving humans into the solar system. Our conversation about colonizing space continues after a break with these two Colorado authors, Leonard David and Amanda Hendricks. They think Mars and Titan, respectively, are good options. Titan is a moon of Saturn. The question is, are these places far enough away 
if we need a backup for Earth. By the way, you're hearing music composed just for us by Denver electronic artist Tommy Metz. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colonizing space is our focus today. My guests are Amanda Hendricks, senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute in Niwot. She's co-author of Beyond Earth, Our Path to a New Home in the Planets. Also with us, Leonard David of Golden, a space journalist and author of Mars, Our Future on the Red Planet. We spoke at the Newman Center at the University of Denver. Underlying this whole discussion is a fundamental question. Why send humans to space to colonize other planets? What reasons do you find most compelling? Is it the climate change disaster here on Earth scenario, Leonard? You know, I'm a kid. I I grew up watching the early space program, and I have my checklist. We're going to the moon. We're going to Mars. Check it. Oh, Alpha Centauri. Oh, that looks good. I'm talking late 50s, early 60s. The whole space race was raging. It was like the the Soviet Union, communism versus capitalism. We're going to the moon. Are we going to work together? What's going to happen? And my checklist, we're behind right now. We are so far behind when I signed up to write about space. We should be on Alpha Centauri and beyond. When you say we're behind, do you mean the United States or do you mean humanity? Humanity. Okay. So what do you think is the reason we should colonize another planet? I'm not quite on the multi-planet species uh, wavelength. I'm not there yet. There are people like Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, very interested in a multi-planet species. We've got to go colonize Mars because we, if the Earth drops out, we want to have people on another world. I will say it here, and I, God, I hope I'm wrong uh, as a journalist, but my guess is that civilizations have a limited amount of time to get out of town because the Oort cloud and other things that can happen with the Oort cloud. We have all these cometary materials coming in. Mm-hmm. My guess is that something happens and they come in and eviscerate the entire solar system. They strike the solar system. They can wipe out life as we know it. So as much as I love Mars, as much as I like Titan, we may have to get much more distant in our putting our home address on something. Amanda, what do you think is underlying this quest? I think it's uh, human nature to want to keep exploring and to want to keep moving on to the next step. But then maybe it's also a little bit smart to set up roots somewhere else in the solar system so that we're ready to move the human species to somewhere else in the solar system just in case we need to. If If it gets that bad, do you care? Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, well, it, I think it's going to get pretty bad for us to leave Earth. It does. Is it, maybe it's just like our time is up. Maybe, maybe our time is just up and we're just done. Uh-huh. Maybe it's just time for us to be done. Um, I see that. But maybe it's also, I know that there's people out there who like to think that the human species um, is supposed to keep going and is better than just petering out with the Earth. Mm-hmm. And um, I think 
we're smart enough to give it a shot. I also think that just for the space program and for human interest and the human will to explore, that having a destination like Titan is a good, far-reaching goal to have. So that, yes, we should go back to the moon and we should go to Mars, but let's all do it as stepping stones to going to Titan. And that way we don't lose momentum along the way. Ah, these might not be mutually exclusive, Mars right. and Titan. No, I don't think so. Okay. You point out, Amanda, that historically the main rationale for exploration here on Earth was economic. Countries paid for ships and supplies, and the colonies sent back gold and taxes. It worked quite well for a while for Spain and England, and even the U.S. as it expanded westward. Uh, But you say that model really doesn't fit space. It might not fit space because so far we can't think of any uh, economic gain to be had in space. Right, I mean, like people the, talk about diamonds, or diamonds, something. right, and helium three and all that stuff. But uh, so far, we haven't found anything solid to go for. And even if we did, the economics of getting it right. would have and to bring be in it our, back. Would have to right. be in our favor, right? Uh, but there's still benefits to going just from a, a exploration standpoint, and even from uh, the business of spaceflight. Leonard, entrepreneurs are lining up to make money in space, and you mentioned Elon Musk, founder of SpaceX. Briefly, what is his plan for making money as it relates to Mars? I'm not sure I know every detail of his plan, but Elon Musk, a pretty interesting character. I was lucky to meet him before he got so important that you can't ever call him again. (laughs) But uh, there are other entrepreneurs out there. There's Richard Branson. Virgin Galactic, trying to sell space tourism seats for suborbital space liners. There's Jeff Bezos. How many people here use Amazon.com? Some of your money is going into his rocket program. He is very interested in, in space travel for the public uh, citizens in space. Uh, to answer your question, I don't know. You know, Elon, uh, making money on this is going to be tough. I think mm-hmm. there is a NASA agreement already with with SpaceX to uh, utilize his capability. So in some way, you know, NASA public-private partnerships are sort of blossoming here. I don't know. I will say that one thing I didn't put in my book Mm -hmm. that I wish I would have put in, I have gotten some really interesting uh, emails lately about microbes on Mars, if they're there. We have a lot, there's an industry of microbe development down here on Earth that people make money on. Is it possible that we're going to find something on Mars that has some microbial valuable aspect to it that might benefit some Earth process? You, you mean in like it. disease research or? I'm not, I'm just, I'm reading the papers. Okay. Um, <laughs> I will say there's people out there that talk about that. I don't know, you know, but some of this is a little on, it reminds me, and my mom used to beat this on me, Seward's Folly. Oh, the value of Alaska. How do we know what the value of Alaska was when we cashed in on that thing? Hmm. We didn't know. I think some of this is probably pretty much we're going to get into that same kind of vacuum of economics that we're not sure what it is. But, you know, until we get there. Until we get there. Uh-huh. And I, uh, there is a value of sociology. There's a value of ethics. There's a value of other things going on here. I'm just saying that I think there are investments that we make in the future that 
cash out later that we are going to be surprised about. I'm convinced of that. Amanda, you say one of the reasons that private companies like SpaceX and the others are so important is cultural. For example, at NASA, where you worked for 12 years, there are rules about what words you can and can't use. (laughs) Talking about Mars, I think. Will you describe that for us? Um, Well, their rules are not written down. Okay. This is understood. It's just kind of understood. I mean, I mean, technically, you don't really hear um, NASA people talking about colony. That word setting is up a colony. Okay. You hear more NASA people talking about a habitat, but um, that was a little bit tongue in cheek in the book when we. Oh, it said was that. okay. I, couldn't, <laughs> I think it does. I think it was tongue in cheek to make a larger point, which is but, that the culture of NASA is a little stuffy. Is that? So, would, would you say that? Um, NASA has been doing what they do for a long time and doing a very good job at it, right? But the newer uh, private space companies that are out there do things a little bit differently. And so both are very valuable. And so that's why a lot of these public-private partnerships that we're talking about now for going into space and working together to do these really big long-term projects and expensive projects are so valuable Mm. because there's a lot of institutional um, knowledge and know-how at NASA and maybe some more, or I should say, less risk-averse attitudes at some of the private companies. Maybe that's what we're seeing. And, just, and those can play well together. Just for some perspective, NASA gets about half a percent of the U.S. budget. During the Apollo years, which Leonard was so fond of and uh, you know, was really motivated by, it was, it was 4%. So a half a percent today, 4% then. We've talked about cooperation between NASA and the for-profit world. Does there inherently have to be international cooperation for either of these missions to Mars or Titan? Yes. Yes. I think so. Because they're both, I mean, for sending humans either to Mars or Titan or even to the moon these days, they're big projects, they're expensive, and um, international cooperation is really important. And we're finding that even with non manned programs right now. Sending robots ahead of people. Sending robots, sending uh, planetary probes to Saturn, to Jupiter, to asteroids. They're all international missions right now, and it really works well um, in terms of sharing efforts, but also sharing knowledge. Right now, around Mars, there's an Indian orbiter. That's right. There is a European orbiter. NASA has several orbiters. Uh, There's going to be a United Air... An Emirates orbiter. Yes. Yeah. Aren't those examples of countries going it on their own? They're going on their own, and they're going to do... And China wants to land their own Mars rover in 2021. So, you know, it's But but that doesn't smack of cooperation to me. That smacks of competition. Well, there is some of that. And I, but I agree with Amanda. You know, you know, a lot of these principal investigator probes that go out are, are glued on as a bunch of international scientists that work with other, you know, obviously other countries. Mm-hmm. They are part of the science day of the gathering. And I think that's going to mimic what's going to happen with, with the human exploration of Mars. One thing that's really kind of interesting to watch is bifurcation of international activity. The European Space Agency is very interested in putting a lunar village together, bringing all their countries together to put a moon base together. And interestingly, it seems that Republican administrations are more moon-focused than Mars-focused. I agree. I think we we haven't seen the the dance card yet uh, on the Trump uh, uh, bandwagon. 
but uh, you're right. I think the, the lunar card is going to be played once more again mm. by the United States, and we'll see. My friend Buzz Aldrin mm. does not want to spend U.S. tax dollars to go back to the moon. We've been there. We've done it. Been there, done that. Yeah. But I'll also point out that in terms of international cooperation, we're doing it already on International Space Station with humans. So that's a good sort of testing ground for that kind of cooperation that I think can only benefit um, future programs to other planets. We are at the Newman Center in Denver talking about a future colony in space with planetary scientist Amanda Hendricks and space journalist Leonard David. They both live in Colorado. In some related news, SpaceX launched a communications satellite last weekend, a successful return to space after one of its Falcon 9 rockets exploded back in September. The launch was considered critical to getting SpaceX back on track as it works towards its goal of sending people to Mars. Still to come, what happens when astronauts get stressed out? In one case, they went on strike mid-mission. Why NASA invests so much in psychological training. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Of all the complexities of putting humans into space, nothing is more unpredictable than humans themselves. We are joined now by a man who spent the last year living as an astronaut on Mars, or at least pretending to. Anjay Stewart was part of a six-person crew confined to a Mars simulator on a volcano in Hawaii. Anjay, welcome back to Colorado Matters. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you very much. This was a NASA-sponsored experiment. Just give us a few examples of how it was designed to look and feel like Mars. So the habitat itself we were in was a confining environment. It's a two-story dome with a um, shipping container attached, which served as our storage area and workshop. And most of the time we were in the simulation, we were confined to that space. Whenever we left, we would have to wear some sort of simulated spacesuit, just like real Mars astronauts would have to wear real spacesuits outside of their habitats. Um, we were completely isolated, so there wasn't like a Walmart or a McDonald's next door. We were on our own out there on the, uh, the mountain. We had sort of a, a two-kilometer radius of basically raw lava flow, um, very harsh rock, very harsh environment that was completely devoid of any human activity. And that was sort of our simulated Mars, or S-Mars as we call it. S-Mars, simulated Mars. It was also true that they handicapped your communication so that it would feel like Mars. Mars is so far away that it's not like you can just call up and get the person on the line and have an an in-time conversation, a real-time conversation. That's correct. So we think of the speed of light as something that's very quick. We turn on the light switch in our house, the lights come on, and we immediately see it. And certainly on Earth here, it pretty much is instantaneous. But as Douglas Adams once said in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, space is big, really big. You won't (laughs) believe how just vastly big it is. So our radio signals that travel at the speed of light through space 
take minutes or even hours, if you're talking about the outer planets, to get from one place to the other. And we see this in the operations for our Mars orbiters now. At worst case, it takes over 20 minutes from a signal sent from Earth to get to Mars. And then if they send something back, it takes that same time back. And this is something that may have a psychological effect on the astronauts. Again, not being able to just pick up a telephone or get on a Skype call with somebody. The messages we send will take that amount of time to go. So in our simulation, we couldn't make phone calls. We had to communicate over email, and that email was delayed by 20 minutes in each direction. We could record videos and things on our iPads, and we could send those, but those also were delayed. That's how you communicated with your family? That's correct. Uh Uh-huh. Did it stink in the dome? (laughs) Did it stink? Um, Most of the time, no. Um, Okay. What I will say is um, part of living there, part of the experience was finding ways to conserve water. So we Uh used composting toilets rather than flush toilets. Flushing water is a major drain on your water supply. Mm. But the problem with a composting unit means you have to clean out the composting unit. And we did that once a week, and that is as bad as it sounds. Um, If you see the movie The Martian and you see Matt Damon making his soil and he has sort of that visceral reaction, yes, that's your reaction the first time you you get your turn to clean the composting toilet unit. And from what I understand, this is something real astronauts have to put up with as well. Um, I've heard that it's sort of a rite of passage that you get your turn to fix the ISS toilet at some point. Imagine <laughs> that same thing, but in zero gravity with things floating around. So I hear it's, it's not a pleasant experience, but that's part of being an astronaut. You see all the cool things, you see rockets, you see spacesuits, but it's a hard job as well. All the cleaning on the ISS or whatever spacecraft you're in is up to you. They don't send up janitorial crews up to the ISS between missions. <laughs> so astronauts are both very high-tech people, but you also just have to clean your room like you have to as well. So if there are any children in the audience, if you want to be an astronaut, clean your room. <laughs> Help <laughs> it, me out there, parents. <laughs> it will come in handy. Uh, do you think that fundamentally the mission you were on was a mission of psychological study to see how you all would interact with each other? Absolutely. That was NASA's stated goal for the mission. Uh We want to understand the psychology of small team dynamics under isolation. What happens whenever you take a very small group of people, in our case six, and I believe that's also what NASA envisions for a crew as well as six people, and separate them from Earth? Again, not just from people, but also putting that time delay in communications as well. How does that affect team dynamics? How does that affect the crew's mental state? And these are important things to answer because psychological effects can have the effect on the ability for the astronauts to do their job once they get to Mars. You want the astronauts, once they get there, to be very high-functioning, to be able to make the most of their time there. And if they're dealing with things like infighting among the crew or psychological problems because of the separation with Earth, that's going to reduce the amount of what the astronauts can accomplish once they get to Mars. So take us to a conflict that happened in this dome and how it got resolved. Um, I'm actually not sure I can talk about that. Some of the uh, research is active NASA research. They actually don't want us releasing things. Oh, wow. Did you punch anyone? There there were no fist fights, no. (laughs) Um, No, it never got down to any sort of physical violence, so we were able to deal with arguments um, civilly and rationally. What did you learn about yourself? Um, I learned quite a few things about myself. Um, I actually did go on the mission in part to understand how I would be able to deal with these sort of stresses, um, what it's really like to be an astronaut. Again, learning the hard part as well as the easy part. One of the things I learned, and this was actually on my HERA mission, 
So before I went on high seas, I went on a two-week-long HERA mission at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. That was a two-week-long simulated mission rather than a year-long one. Just for a taste. Um, well, this was actually kind of, I had done that. I'd never heard of high seas. I got into the HERA mission and then later on learned about high seas. And they said, you're a great candidate for it because you've already done ah, this two-week-long High mission. seas was the Hawaiian mission. Correct. The Mars mission. Mm-hmm. So what I learned there was, um, if you've ever seen the movie Interstellar, you see Matthew McConaughey's character has the headphones with the um, thunderstorms on them. And I've heard a lot of astronauts say how they miss the color green. So me and a few other crew members collected things like photographs of Earth. Um, I actually got a CD of like waves crashing on a Hawaiian beach somewhere. And it turns out I didn't need any of these things. I was actually very comfortable in the habitat. That was something that surprised me. You didn't miss those things that you thought you would. I didn't. And I guess, you know, that's probably different for a lot of people. I know for some of our high seas crew members, they are more outdoor people than I am. And they're people that are used to going hiking. And Mm -hmm. so they felt a bit more confined than I did. So it's, I think it's a very individual thing, but for me, I actually felt very comfortable in that environment. What was the first thing you ate when you were free from that year? Um, some nice, fresh Hawaiian pineapple. Uh, Hawaii pineapple. has great pineapple. I didn't realize I liked pineapple as much as I did until I went to Hawaii. And so that was my first request when I came out. We got to request some foods that were there waiting for us on the outside. Amanda Hendricks, there are tests like this being done by space agencies around the world. I think there's one in Antarctica. And right. there's an Italian cave, too, right? There's a project run by ESA, the European Space Agency, called Caves, which takes place in Sardinia in Italy. And... Um, Astronauts are taken down into these underground caves. It's very dark. It's very confined. And it's, in a lot of ways, like being in space, like being on a space mission, maybe in a foreign environment, because you've got to deal with your team dynamics and follow the leader and follow the instructions and do your daily tasks and make sure you get everything done. Otherwise, you could end up in some serious physical trouble. And it's very dark, like it is sometimes in space, and cold, it's damp, um, and can be very confining feeling. Yeah, the claustrophobia is what hits me when you describe it. It must feel very claustrophobic. Um, And so you just kind of have to deal with that and see how you do psychologically um, in that environment. So that's just another example of an analog program that ESA astronauts and NASA astronauts use as kind of a training before they go up into space. Leonard David, the risk of astronaut stress is real. NASA has some experience here. In the 1970s, I understand, a crew on Skylab went on strike. What what happened? And tell us about Skylab. It's one of those uh, folklore uh, stories that's real. The Skylab astronauts are up there in this huge space station experimental that NASA put up, and there's three of them in there. And frankly, uh, what I gather from talking to a couple of, at least one of the Skylab astronauts, they got too much ground control to Major Tom (laughs) saying, get on with your task. You're behind schedule. You're doing, you, you're, you guys are not doing what we're, we should be right here, right now, and it's not happening. And they go, We've had it. We've got too much going on up here. And uh, they kind of took some time off to themselves and uh, did their own things, what they wanted to do. So there is the 
potential of space strikes, you know, because we've seen one. Uh, there's also some psychological things here, and we got to that. The distance between Earth and Mars, you're on Mars, and there was, there's going to be a point in time where the sun gets between Mars and Earth. No communications. Mm, not even delayed, visual, no communications at all. What I'm getting to, a visual cue of a dot in the sky. There, a, a psychologist I interviewed for the book, he has a whole thing about Earth out of view. We don't know what that means. It may not mean anything. He, was, he said, look, I don't know if this is a problem or not. We don't know. Hmm. There's another thing that's happening with psychology of astronauts is the overview effect. That, you know, being around Earth, there is a kinship with the planet. You go talk to astronauts. I've been lucky to talk to a lot of them. Some of them are very philosophical about no borders on the planet, environment, how they see the Earth as a, a total. And you remove that, and we don't know what long-distance astronauts are going to go through. So we've got some cool things to sort out, not only on the habitats and, and how important they are to give a leg up on this issue, but uh, there are some other ones that are floating around out there, literally, that we're not going to get to for a while until people go. NJ, you've been nodding your head. It doesn't sound like any of this is a surprise to you, having simulated Mars life for a year. I, I guess the way I think about it is we all sort of have an experience. We all sort of have our world, you know, sort of the things we do every day. We go to school or work. We go that, you know, along the same roads every day. And we know there's sort of a world outside of that, and occasionally we venture into it. Mm. But that's sort of our world. Well, for our mission, our world got very, very small. Just the six of us in our dome. And after a while, even though... We knew we were still in Hawaii. There was really no illusion that we were really on Mars, you know. But we still felt separated from the planet. And all the other sort of divisions that are out there, national divisions, divisions of race, of gender, those kind of go away. And the only real division that matters is it's the six of us and the rest of humanity on the other side of the uh, communications delay. And that really, I think it's more that isolation where you have a very real separation that makes the other, I guess, more artificial separations we come up with seem less important, I guess. Mm. I want to ask an overarching question about energy and money and resources. Someone may have been listening to this conversation thinking, why spend all of this money, all of this energy, all of this brain power on other places? If we put 10% of this towards trying to crack climate change or solve problems here on Earth, we would be better off as a species. That maybe even the quest to colonize another planet is a signal of what is dooming us. Can I get each of you to reflect on that, Amanda? I think absolutely. If we need to focus efforts on our home planet, Earth, and make sure that we solve the problems here. However, in doing so, we cannot abandon space exploration. Why not? Because we need to keep doing that. It's important for us to learn about our Earth, to learn about ourselves, and to learn about our solar system. Um, Isn't it important to make sure that the river behind my house is clean and that the sea level isn't rising? Yes, very. But we can do both, and we need to do both. Um, We need to recognize that both problems are important. Earth is our, is our number one uh, focus. There's a lot of big problems here that we need to resolve, too. But I think if we abandon um, 
space exploration, then we'll be in really big trouble. Because it's a lot about our human nature is to want to understand what else is out there. And I think that um, it gives a lot of people hope, and it helps us understand uh, where we came from and where we might be going. And It gives a lot of people hope. That's interesting. Don't you think people are less engaged in the space program today than they used to be? Oh, I don't think so. I hope not. I think there's a lot of people interested in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, even whether, whether it's the uh, human spaceflight program or just the robotic program, both are very important. And I think people are really interested in, in both of them. NJ. So you made an interesting distinction in your question. You had said, you know, why should we spend money in space when we could be spending that money solving things like climate change or mm. coming up with more reusable forms of energy? What I would argue is that by going out into space, we actually are spending money on solving those problems. Whenever we go to Mars, Mars at its basis level is the study of a planet. Earth is also a planet. But the difference between the two is Mars right now is a planet that is relatively untouched by human hands. Now, things like climate change, global warming, Mm -hmm. some of that may be part of the planet and some of that is likely things we're doing as well. In any experiment, you have an experimental group and a control group. One is the one where you're changing the variables and things like that, and the other is the one you have to compare to. If all you look at is Earth, you only have an experimental group. You have no control group. Mars can serve as our control group. As the planet, we can go to study to better understand how planets work in sort of their natural environment, so to speak. By looking even farther out into the solar system, looking, or even beyond that, looking to the stars, Mm. the stars essentially are essentially nuclear reactors and atomic colliders. You know, we built the um, collider at CERN for billions and billions of dollars, and these things are out there just waiting for us to look at them to understand the base laws of physics. They're just out there, and all we have to do is point our telescopes at them. The study of space is a study of Earth. We can take all those lessons and bring them back to solve the problems that we have here. Leonard David, I know this question in some ways is as old as the space program itself. You know, why not spend the money here? Well, how do you answer it? Uh, I try to avoid it. <laughs> because I've got a mixed, Not here. I've got a mixed emotion about it. I, uh-huh. I, I really, you know, I'm on the wavelength in emails with all the space cadets. I go to conferences, there are space cadet people. They got, the front rows, got, got people with helmets on, ready to go. Yeah. And I'm trying to, you know, one of the hard parts about trying to be a reporter maybe in this, why isn't it that everybody isn't like, we should be on Mars already. We should be on Titan. We should be, where's the interstellar ship? They'll spend billions of dollars to go watch Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to NASA's budget, we're trying to figure out, well, should they be spending that much money? I think I can play the spinoff card, uh, the technology that comes out of putting resources into a high-level, high-tech high professional, high, everybody's got to be on the team, you know, is, is a big thing. It's a big factor. It's how we got space ice cream, after all. Yeah. Which we now eat on Earth. And, you know, I, I'm not going to go Teflon. I grew up with, you know, my, my hope was that we would have perfect ball bearings. And that was good enough for me because I lived in San Diego and I had a skateboard <laughs> all, I could, all I could do was go travel more on the skateboard. I was ready for that. 
But that's not uh, what it's about. I mean, there's, there's some other thing going on here that's bigger than me, and I can't figure it out, but I think it's important to carry this torch forward. Um, it's expensive, it's dangerous, and it's uh, destiny. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Leonard David is an award-winning space journalist based outside Golden. Amanda Hendricks is a senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute in Niwa. And Andrzej Stewart took part in a year-long Mars simulation in Hawaii. We recorded the conversation about colonizing space at the Newman Center on the University of Denver campus. See photos from the evening at cprnews.org. The music you've been hearing comes from electronic pop artist Tommy Metz. He wrote it just for us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. Cannabis is big business in this state. Medical and recreational stores sold more than a billion dollars worth of marijuana last year. But there are still large swaths of Colorado without stores. The Western Slope was one of those places, but that appears to be changing. Here's CPR's Ben Marcus. A few years back, attorney and pot advocate Brian Vicente held an event in Grand Junction. This is before recreational marijuana was legalized. And like 300 people showed up. I mean, the the interest in this was mind-boggling. This is when only medical marijuana was legal, and he'd do these know-your-rights meetings where they'd cover all sorts of things, like what to do if you're a medical patient and you're pulled over by a cop. This was back in 2009. Vicente says there was some interest in starting pot stores, but also... There were many people that were affected by meth and were using medical marijuana to get off of meth. It was moving for me to be a part of that event. So I just think there's this undercurrent of, of interest and has been for a while in Grand Junction particularly. But Grand Junction is deeply conservative. It has more in common politically with Utah than with the Front Range. And eight years after that meeting, there still isn't a single marijuana store in the city. Grand Junction's neighbors, though, are not waiting. You know, people are starting to look for other ways to bring in money into these communities. Jesse Lockman owns Colorado Alternative Healthcare, the only pot store in Palisade. It's a medical dispensary. Palisade's a small town just east of Grand Junction. And in November, voters there legalized recreational marijuana. Lockman says with the energy industry down, tourists are more important to the local economy. And they expect retail marijuana when they get here. If, they, if it's not available to them, it almost seems like they're let down. So, um, you know, it's definitely something that it seems that the tourists are expecting now. Bachman says there's probably a reason that smaller towns like Palisade are warming to marijuana. People know each other. You're actually able to, to, to canvas here and you, you can bang every door in this, in this town and you can, you can talk to just about all of the residents and the registered voters here. There are only about 2,700 people in Palisade, but it's one of a handful of small towns along I-70 that now allow retail recreational marijuana. Rich Sales, the town manager of Palisade, says residents were probably more apt to vote for recreational sales because of Jesse Lockman's medical store. And that store has been really a good uh, community neighbor. Uh, They volunteer in the community. They run a good business. That may have played a part, but the bigger driver for some is just simple economics. The Grand Junction area has lost about 10,000 jobs in the last eight years, thanks to low prices for natural gas. 
It's definitely not the rosy picture that um, you might be seeing in Denver or the Front Range. That's Amy Hamilton, a staff writer for the Grand Junction Daily Sentinel. She says when she talks to voters about marijuana, many are interested in the money that it could bring in. They might not have cared really either way whether marijuana made an appearance in their town, but they did want the town not to have to struggle financially. Despite the potential tax revenue, Grand Junction voters didn't appear willing to allow marijuana stores yet. Just days ago, organizers announced that they failed to gather enough signatures to force a vote. Jesse Lockman, the pot store owner in Palisade, wasn't surprised. He says, remember, this is one of the most conservative corners of Colorado. This part of Colorado, as far as the people are concerned over here, a lot of them consider it a different state than what we have on the Front Range. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner at Colorado Matters.